John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 032.mt2436, certificate number 13818, Allegheny time. Your attention please. Train number 12656, Chennai Central, Ahmedabad, Navjeevan, Superfast Express is expected to arrive at 1910 hours. It's Allegheny time. Allegheny time. Ba, da, da, da. Um, Can't touch this. Here's a, uh, here's a story problem for you. On August 10th, 1853, a train leaves New York headed south. Okay. At the same time, a train heads, leaves Philadelphia headed north. Okay. Unfortunately, they're on a single track. Uh-oh. This, this is what never happens in story problems. Story problems never end in, in mangled iron and, and bodies. They're on a single track. These two trains collide somewhere in New Jersey. Is this at a time? Oh, so this is the 1850s, so yeah. early train days. Pretty early for trains, and I, uh, at the time, they cut corners by sometimes just having one track. Oh, I thought you meant they actually cut corners. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your railroad track has corners, you are in trouble, because those things are not super maneuverable. So it would have been a thing where trains went around each other on a siding-type operation. There were certain sidings, but obviously it's much cheaper to lay down a single track than, yeah. than one in each direction. Well, that's true in, in recording music, too. <laughs> yeah, they, lay down one track, bro. They didn't have an eight-track machine, so that... Four trains could go north and four trains could go south. But 1850s, how fast were these trains going? Uh, one of the trains was, I think, um, one of the trains was trying to make up time oh, okay. and was going about 40 miles an hour. That's fast enough. That's when super it's, fast. When, it's, uh, when you got a train behind you. Only four dead, but two days later, near Pawtucket, Rhode Island, on the- It's quite a ways away from- On the Providence and Worcester Railroad, there's an even bigger crash- Again, a head-on collision between a train going north and a train going south, and the timing of the sightings, uh, the t- you know the timetable of of who was supposed to get over on the sighting when did not work. Right. This time, fourteen people died, and uh, the first one was on a blind curve. Uh, this one, I think, had a train that was going too fast to try to make up lost time, and as a result, it was just a horrific crash. A wooden train cars just kind of telescoping together, Ugh. which you know you can imagine what happens if you're a a, a baggage or a person, a non a human baggage. Right. You get a whole other cars. train car comes up and right in your lap. 14 dead. 
17 injuries. Back then, an, an interesting thing I didn't really realize about trains, the engineer didn't have brakes. Each, oh, they just turn the train off. Each, <laughs> yeah, you can do that for sure. <laughs> so I guess you do have brakes in uh-huh, a way. Uh-huh. Um, each car does have a, a you know a wheel that a brakeman can turn. Right. But that's a per car thing that the engineer has no control over. So yeah, not super right. Maneuverable be, in any way. There wouldn't be a pneumatic system that connected the whole train. It was you had conductors that were furiously screwing down that that wheel, and then the the engineer presumably like locks up the the wheels isn't isn't giving it the gas but wow uh, I, I was reading two kind of period media accounts of these crashes scientific american has a long were you doing that to editorial. prepare for the show or were you just doing that that's just that's just a tuesday for sitting, me sitting in the bathtub <laughs> the scientific american uh called the railroads of New Jersey, quote, the most contemptible and mean in our land, fit only for Fiji legislators and Dahomey exactors. Tough talk. I guess comparing uh, infrastructure to West Africa or Polynesia was the was the meanest thing you could say in an extremely racist time. Yeah, boy, pretty mean. <laughs> uh, I, I don't believe Fiji or Dahomey really had railroads at all back then. Absolutely, they did not. Probably. So, so, Absolutely, probably. <laughs> Please don't look it up. <laughs> and if you do, just correct John and not me. But the you know the Scientific American editorial frames it as a problem of infrastructure, right? Our as railroad, we would today. Our railroads are crap. We need at a minimum double tracks because the siding thing is not working. If you um, go from Philadelphia to New York today, is there more than one track? There, there, uh, there are. There are plenty of tracks, but it does not make that a. Uh, like a much better, much better zone. You don't have a head-on collision, though. Uh, there was a terrible derailment not that long ago. You do still get derailed on this same on this same track because the engineer was was exceeding the speed limit. There's a famous tunnel in Baltimore that uh, that like sort of precludes the railroad that that. East Coast Railroad being improved. D- didn't we just do this on Omnibus? Yeah, we did. It's, I think it's last addendum. <laughs> if you haven't listened to the addendum shows, we are not going through this again. That no. that information was not for you. No, that was for us alone. That's for pa- Patreon, Patreon supporters. Patreon donors, that's right. There's a financial cost that comes with knowing any more about that Baltimore tunnel. Or at least the version of it we kind of read verbatim from a reader. <laughs> It's it, so I read a you know the New York Times had multiple stories about this second one the crash in Rhode Island that left fourteen dead and seventeen injured and it's really hard to overstate the trauma that these high speed rail crashes caused when that was a new thing, right? Because imagine I mean the railroad was such a revolutionary uh, technology. Yes, people must have been so excited that. We no longer have to barge up the Erie Canal. We can speed is possible yeah. for the first time in human history. You can go faster than a horse. But there was no, there's no there's no comparable collision between two horse carts. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. I mean, people would have been aware of natural disasters. Ships would sink. Shipwreck is the closest thing. I think you're right um, because when there's a flood or a you know you would be used to big death tolls from a flood or an earthquake in, in diverse parts of the earth. But you would develop a religious system to think, uh, right. well, these are acts of God. Um, it's hard to say that when uh, operator error or operator error or lousy tracks means two trains smash into each other at a speed your your parents couldn't have imagined. Yeah, think of just the the violence of a collision. The the they didn't have collisions. Collisions hadn't been invented. Right. It's it's a kind of 
sure, crazy, like startling and probably nightmarish to consider, particularly because it's the first example where you can see a collision is imminent and can't do anything about it. You can't it. do anything. You don't have brakes. Yeah. This was their 9-11, really, to, like the, as far as kind of the way that they articulate just the trauma of it. Every train wow. crash back then was like 9-11. Here's the, uh, here's the New York Times on the second crash. The headline is more slaughter by railroad. Our columns grown again with reports of wholesale slaughter by railroad trains. Hard upon the heels of the catastrophe on the Camden and Amboy Road, that was the New Jersey crash, come tidings of a similar and still more dreadful disaster upon the road between Providence and Worcester. There is a startling similarity in the cir circumstances of the two. The heart sickens over these incessantly recurring reports of death and destruction on our public thoroughfares. We lose all faith in the safety of travel and ask despairingly if it is utterly impossible to provide a rev remedy. Has human ingenuity been exhausted in devising the means? Or has the power of society proved unable to enforce such law by regulations which will prevent these horrible holocausts to the railway demon? Wow. This guy is losing it in the middle of the paragraph. Fourteen dead. 14 dead and he is and they're literally questioning the existence of God and the the goodness of the universe. Now, the implication of that passage is that the railways were understood to be public conveyances and the roads the tr the tracks were were uh like commonly held rather than that these were enterprises yeah, capitalists. Yeah, nobody's, nobody's angry at a at a fat cat here. That's true. And and it and it seems later in American history that Railroads were seen as symbols of of uh, robber barons and empire builders. I guess that's not clear yet. Uh, but they surely must have been then, or or, or were. Well, the New York Times has a different uh, a different uh, scapegoat in mind here. Oh, here's here's the Is sentence it the of Hun? blame. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> uh, it's probably Fiji or Dahomey. Right, that was the, <laughs> the wily Chinese, the Hun of the era. Both were due to the same cause, the collision of two trains running at a high speed in opposite directions upon a single track. So they agree that infrastructure is a problem. Agreed. And to complete the likeness, this is something that happened in both crashes, the variation of a timepiece is assigned as the immediate occasion of the meeting. Oh, it's the clock. A conductor's watch was a couple minutes off, or, or in any case... Two conductors' watches were two minutes out of agreement so in this both is, cases. This is before... This is where we get the conductor coming off the train and talking to the station master, and they both pull their pocket watches out and synchronize them. It's before that was the... So that should have happened, but there's uh, there's an even bigger problem, oh. which is the station master. That, that relies on the station master's clocks being synchronous between uh, Providence and Worcester, or right. New York and Philadelphia. Which relies on the telegraph. Which relies on the telegraph. Um, a, you know, a still fairly recent invention, which is not doing its job of keeping, uh, train timetables synchronized. The conductor in the second case, the Rhode Island crash where 14 died, actually faced manslaughter charges. Not oh. because he was drunk or goofing around, but his because watch his wrong. watch was two minutes off. And this was a systemic problem. Can in you imagine railways? You're, you're at a you're at a point in life where you're happily like bringing your bringing your crop to, to market in in uh, in your cart and sending letters via the Pony Express. Who am I here? Uh, I'm, I'm just some you're, farmer. You're, you're him. You're them. Okay. And uh, and then the telegraph and the steam engine and the locomotive and the pocket watch all arrive at once <laughs> and 
wow, there's a the painful period of... That's what this is about. That's what this omnibus entry is about. The invention of time. Obviously, not in a real sense. I mean, in the 17th century on, every village had a sundial. I mean, the sundial goes back to, to antiquity. Right. But as recently as the 17th and 18th centuries, every little village would have a sundial and would keep its own time. So not a not a clock tower, not a not a cuckoo clock where where maidens came out and danced around a, a Gra- hut. gradually clock towers and, and church bells take over as the industrial revolution happens. And the industrial revolution also brings with it the the need for scheduling. Now you have a time when you go to work. Right. It's not just the sun or your mooing cows. It's the whistle telling you it's time to get out. Now there's a whistle. But it doesn't. It, do, it doesn't seem to go go down to the minute. It doesn't seem to regiment people's lives the same way it does in modernity. Where uh, you know, I had a I had a conference. I had a Zoom call this morning at nine thirty five a.m. Right, and it would have kind of pissed people off if I'd been there at nine thirty two or nine thirty eight. Right, um, less at nine thirty two than at nine thirty eight. Right, people wouldn't be annoyed. They'd be like, "Why is he already in the chat right now?" Um, but, you know, just as a matter of geographic fact, every town having its own sundial meant that noon was determined by when the shadow of the, when the sun was highest overhead, according to the shadow on your sundial. Right, which changes that if you varies, go 50 miles. That varies with your longitude, exactly. Right. Like, today we assume that, oh, um, you know, it's it's 136 in Seattle, then that means it's 136 in Sacramento, L.A., Bend, Oregon, uh you know, we we assume that time is uniform across a, a, a broad swath or zone. Right. Even though there are time zones in in China where from left to right, it's like, it's basically the distance across the United States and it all it has one time zone. Yeah. Beijing keeps a single time zone, which right. means that if you're uh, a Uyghur in Western China, well, I mean, you've got bigger problems if you're a Uyghur right. in Western China right, right now. now. But, uh, but yeah, you cross the border into... Tajikistan or whatever's next, I'm going to get letters. Turkmenistan. It's it's going to be it's it, it might be four hours different, um, and as a result, some kind of a local, you know, local time is observed. Even though everybody says, yeah, 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 Beijing says it's um, it's noon here, but that's ridiculous um, because the sun just came up. We're, we're going to call it eight a.m. like they do across the border. That's got to be so distorting. It's a reminder that uh, even things that we assume are just kind of basic facts of the universe, like it's one o'clock right now here, but two o'clock in Denver, those all had to be invented in, you know, in as late as the, uh, as late as the late Victorian era, it was 1206 in my village and 1209 in your village down the road. And that all worked just fine because journeys were rare and slow. And it wasn't until the railroads that it became a matter of life and death that we all agree on what time it is, or there will be head on collisions. Actually the countries that border, uh, Western China. Yes, are, please correct me. Uh, so you, so viewers, listeners cannot. Yeah. They're Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And of course, you know, Kashmir is there and, um, you'll see, you'll see, uh, Nepal. These are some of the countries that, that touch, um, uh, Western and Southern China. And you'd expect them to be on the same or adjacent time zones, you know, one hour apart at most. And because of... Kazakhstan. Did be, you say Kazakhstan? I think I, I might have said Tajikistan. Yeah. Oh, which means I was right and I don't get letters. Tajikistan. Did you say that? I don't no. know. <laughs> I, think, I think I might have said Turkmenistan, which is wrong. 
That's that's a whole Tajikistan away. You can remember that one's closer to Turkey. It's got that's right. It's got Turk in that's the name. That's where the Turks come. That's from. the only one that's more that's actually helpfully named. Even Afghanistan, I think, has a tiny little border. Tiny, tiny, tiny little border. It's got that little um, a little tongue, little neck thing. Yeah, neck. So you know, every town had its own local noon, and so it's not enough to check with the station master. You also have to know that. Uh, that's a great band name, Local Noon. <laughs> local Noon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the most part, railroads initially solved this with, as you've hinted, the telegraph. The telegraph made it possible to have, you know, for the first time, instantaneous synchronization of anything because it gave you instantaneous anything. Right. Back before then, you would have, by the time you could tell uh, the next town over what time it was, it wouldn't matter because hours would have passed. Um in the early days of the telegraph, you know, famously the the first message on, I think it was Baltimore to Washington was, uh, on Samuel Morse's invention was what hath God wrought. Uh-huh. But after that, like the third <laughs> or the fourth message was what time is it? Right. That was one of the very first messages sent on that experimental telegraph. And there were actually codes developed to optimize that common use for the telegraph, which is just to ask somebody. What time is it? What time it was. Once that that Boston or that Baltimore to DC line was kind of commercialized and opened as a public business during its first four days of operation, its total receipts were one cent because no one had any need. No one could see any need to use this new invention, you know, kind of like the early days of the World Wide web. You know, right. what is this even for? Happy birthday. Um, what was the Greenwich of the day? Like where was in there- England? It was Greenwich. Where was there a solid time? The U.S. had its Naval Observatory. Right. Um, the which, vice president's house. <laughs> yeah, every day. <laughs> the vice president would get up and stretch. Maybe he'd have some kind of crazy invention that like tipped him out of bed into his shoes and had his coffee ready to go. He'd turn the hourglass over. And then so. he would climb up to the top of the observatory and, and take some readings. Oh, sure. With a sextant. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's Ring why, the bell three times. That's why nobody ever wanted to be vice president. John Nance Gardner hated getting up early. <laughs> so and, much uh, work. And sighting the sun. Ding, uh, ding, ding, ding. So in those first days, the reason why there was only one cent in receipts to the new telegraph business was because a guy came up and wanted to use the machine, and all he had was $20 and a penny. And he said, I don't want to break my 20 What can I get for a penny? And they said, well, a character is a quarter of a cent. So the guy had like four characters. And he said, well, what can I send for four characters? And they said, you can send the number four. What does that mean? That means what time is it? There was a, a one-digit code for what time is it. Oh, four. Because uh-huh. it's such a con- – so he sends four. And and the other end answers, I think, lowercase i, which was code for it's one o'clock. And so for the first week of the telegram, that was all he got. You know, he ended up giving them a penny and letting them keep the change, even though it had actually just been a quarter of a cent each way. And so the at first, the railway solved this problem with the telegraph. Instead of changing anything about time, they just switched from timetables to um, real-time check-ins you know they you could notify the next station down hey i'm running 20 minutes late i see right. whereas whereas before you'd have to say here's what happens you guys need to get onto this siding at this time unless you're more and, and then yield right away to the other train unless you're more than 20 minutes late in which case you need to now do this other thing and they yield to you you know so there were kind of all these crazy switching problems but it seems like if you go past a siding and there was supposed to be a train there and there's not <laughs> as the engineer you would slow down wait a second right shouldn't there be a train there 
it might still be. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess that's true. No, well, you wouldn't see the sighting where it, yeah, I guess it could still be ahead of you. Yeah. One of the people is going to pass. That's true. Some An juncture where there should have been something. Yeah. yeah. And the telegraph now allows you to, to, uh, to, what's this called? Uh, to, what's it called? Uh, to dispatch the trains at the right schedule. Like now you can let somebody know, Hey, the other train is 20 minutes late. We now need you to leave at such and such a time. And then the siding shuffle will work out. Right. Um, in the UK, they decided to go farther than that. Um, as early as 1847. So the, the decade previous to this U.S. reckoning, uh, they started switching individual railroads to Greenwich Mean Time. Huh. Uh, the Great Western Railway did it first, and that that meant that they had to, you know, you know what? We agree that in your little village of uh, Podcastle upon Gromp, uh, it's uh, one eighteen. That's fine. They have a wonderful fair there. But we summers. don't. But we don't care. It's actually one twelve in Greenwich, right? And so, no matter what each village says it is, we're going to operate as if it's Greenwich time. And the Grand, uh, the Grand Northern Railway, as we know, had a had a, a track gauge of nine foot eleven inches. So. Yeah, you can you can rattle off all the gauges of these various <laughs> railways. As that decade had advanced from the early eighteen forties to eighteen forty seven, the various railways fell into line, and what you ended up with were. Uh, Station clocks and, in fact, pocket watches that would have two-minute hands. Oh, with, how did that work? With the correct gap. So you could see at a, at a glance, oh, it's actually, even though it's 118 here in my village, the trains th- are running as if it's 111 because London is, oh, is on a different meridian. Crazy. Um, so you'd have to, so it, it didn't make it less complicated because it didn't uniformize everything. It, people just had to become accustomed that railway time was a different thing right. than local time, which I think the idea was to fix all this confusion and delay, as they would call it on the island of Sodor. But until you get everything standardized, you probably get more confusion, maybe less delay, just because there's now multiple times to keep in mind. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like all those kids in the early 90s, uh, Will Wheaton with his seven swatches on his... <laughs> On his left wrist. Yeah, that, that look that Will Wheaton <laughs> pioneered. <laughs> in 1868, New Zealand became the first country to standardize time completely nationwide. New Zealand. I guess it works in New Zealand. It's it's a... Uh, They're isolated. Yeah. They don't have small. to do what everyone else does. They can cure COVID if they want. Nobody cares. Sure. Um, the, the inciting event was the first telegraph cable connecting the North and the South Island. And suddenly it became clear that a lot of things would run a lot smoother if everybody just had the same time as, uh, I think, Wellington, the capital. And so... I think everything in the world would run more smoothly if we were all synced to Wellington, all New Wellington Zealand. All Wellington time? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'd, I'd be eating meals at weird times. Uh, don't you now? Oh, no, you're a, you're a like, eat-your-meal-on-time person. Absolutely. No, I just eat them whenever. You're already eating on Wellington time. I, sh- I probably am. I should I should try and see if that's true. Maybe that's part of my confusion in the world is that I've been on Wellington time this whole time. It's confusion and delay. <laughs> you should see if your body craves like Southern Hemisphere foods like Vegemite and Pavlova it does at, not. At, at weird times of night. I do not when, when want- they're all, When they're all eating them in, uh, in, the, in the Antipodes. I never want any Vegemite. I do not want green yeast and <laughs> jam. 
So, you know, this is how the UK and New Zealand solved the problem. I should say that it is 10.43 a.m. in Wellington right now. Well, not in the future to our listeners. But but for us, and honestly, it feels like 10 a.m. to me, even though here it is 2.43 p.m. That's less of a gap than you'd think. We're not that far apart. Really? In, yeah. In a lot of ways. Do, hey. Do the Kiwis love their children too? Hey, Kiwis. We're, we're thinking of you right now, across time and space. One thing about one thing that the UK and New Zealand have in common is they are islands and they are small. You know, this right. the the this problem, the scale of this problem changes dramatically when you apply it to even to New England or to the American West, um, where uh, you know a, a train trip between Maine and California, passengers would be checking, changing their watches twenty times it, because if, every time you stop, you get announced local time, and it's never going to match your watch. So this is pre-time zone. That's what I'm saying. Time zones don't exist. Time zones do not exist until essentially the around the turn of the 20th century. Wow. Uh, the um, And one problem with every railway choosing to adopt a certain time. So the r- railways would standardize across their systems, but different railways would do so differently and with different standards aligned to different observatories with the result that in Pittsburgh in the 1850s, there were six different time, railroads, six different railroads observing six different time standards. Insane. So you, depending on where your train was leaving, you know, a train that leaves at 208 on one railway might be the same time as a train leaving at, at, at 221 on a different railway. So they've standard standardized time within their railroad, but it's, they're sharing track. Yes. It's like a corporate, and I don't even know how much track they're sharing. Then these might be railroads with their own tracks. This might be the terminus. If you're at Pittsburgh, the terminus of a bunch of different railways, depending on where you're going, you now have to observe six different weirdly local time zones. So what really led to the standardization was not the crashes so much as consumer confusion. People, uh, you know, the anxiety of, of missing trains, which was a, a new, a new fear. The whole thing about trains is that they, is that they run on time at least, in Mussolini's at, Italy. At least when you got fascists. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, right, you, you get off, you, your train arrives at 2.20, you know your connecting train arrives at 2.30, except your 2.20 arriving train actually arrived at 2.14 because they're on a different time, and the 2.20 or 2.30 train was leaving at 2.16. And much as train crashes were kind of the 9-11 of a simpler era— uh, this is, a, I think, a new anxiety for people. Are you like me? Do you have stress dreams about missing the school bus or missing a pl- uh, a, lay- a plane layover? Or I-, I will literally have bad dreams about missing a mode of transportation that's about to depart. I used to make it a point to be the last person on the airplane. You know, I've flown a lot in the last 25 years, and I used to sit in the... This is before I started to count my miles and try to sit at the front of the airplane. You wanted you wanted the f- fewest minutes on the plane as possible. Yeah, I just was like, why would I rush to get on an airplane just to sit there on the tarmac? So I would wait until they said, you know, last call, and then I would get up and, and walk on and, and not have to wait. Um, oh, I see. You're also minimizing standing in line time. Yeah, I don't yeah. like standing in line to get on an airplane to sit down and wait for other people to come on. But I have missed flights more than once sitting next to the gate and just sort of lost in thought. And they call out like last call. And I'm just 
sitting, staring out the window, watching planes taxi. And then I look over and I'm like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Why is the gate closed? And go up and they're like, yeah, we closed the gate 10 minutes ago. Like the flight, I've missed flights sitting and looking at the gate. This is a very deep anxiety that a lot of people have missing the departure at the scheduled time. And I that's, don't. and that's a new, that's a new invention. I mean, right. a lot of the other stress dreams we have, you know, your teeth falling out or people seeing you naked or not being prepared for a task. Do you have, do you have ever have stage dreams of being up there and not knowing the set list or? No, I, I. My anxiety dreams are all about, um, uh, like being caught in a, in a sniper crossfire. Ah, well, actually then you have very primal ones. I mean, maybe a a medieval, a medieval, uh, surf would also have dreams of being (laughs) held up at sword point or something. Arrows coming in, but you're, you're right. I mean, even prior to the steamship. If you were on, if you were boarding a ship to go to the Americas, it probably didn't leave at ten o'clock exactly. Yeah, being on time didn't actually exist, right? For you know, in a, in a meaningful way, right? It wouldn't. That phrase wouldn't have even meant anything because what is on time? Right. What is time to be on? And there would be long discussions. Oh well, I no, your watch is fast. No, my no, it's not. Uh, I you know. The, the existence of the standard is is in question. You never see it in a Western where two cowboys like synchronize their watches. That's why they always use high noon. The, high the noon. cowboys have to they go to the village sundial in right. front of the saloon. I'll meet you at high noon. Have you ever in your life lived for any period without clocks? I don't think so. Is it good? Is this a walking across Europe story? Yes. Here we are. It's another episode of Omnibus. It's a new episode of John's show. Uh, I walked across Europe once and I'm still uh, eating out on it. (laughs) And I talk about it every day. Uh, I did not have a watch or any timepiece with me when I walked across Europe. So you're back in a time when people would walk places and therefore you're on time when you choose to leave. Right. What the heck would a watch have done except give me problems? And a rash. And, um, And so for six months, I only knew... Time as dawn, mid-morning, noon-ish, mid-afternoon, dinner time, dark, and then midnight. And what it are was, the effects, if any? It was great because over time, you, you you know what time it is. I feel generally. like I'm good at that now. Yeah. Like even without a watch, I, I think I'm always within about 15 minutes. Yeah, it only took me a month to be able to just at any point of day just sort of look up and it's not like I was marking the sun as it arced across the sky, but just sort of like, Oh, right. It's about two thirty three, and that's fine. What else did I need? And then at one point I met a guy in Hungary who wanted to join me for a while. He was like, we were in Budapest and he was like, Oh, you know, can I walk with you for a few days? Um, and I was like, I mean, I liked him a lot and I said, sure, join me. And he had a watch. And so all of a sudden, every time we passed a sign that said, um, you know, that we had walked five kilometers, he would look at his watch and say, oh, well, we, you know. We're making good time. Yeah. Or we're not making good time. Oh, we need to pick up our pace. That's, that's, that's me. Uh, that's my dad curse on the road trip to be like, uh, oh, we're not making very good time. It, it, you guys want to pee again? Come on. And he drove me crazy. And after two days, I was like, we, you have to go home. And it was very frustrating. Wait, you actually didn't, you actually sent him back to Hungary. 
Well, he, we were in Hungary the whole oh. time. Oh, well, there you and go. That's, what's, that's, that's convenient for him. That was really frustrating because we walked for two and a half days and then we got to a town. He got on a train and was back in Budapest in like 20 minutes. And I was, you, you know. You thought he was a dilettante. I was like, oh, God, if I could just get on a train. I mean, I guess. That I guy needs but. to go walk across Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah, with no watch and see how he likes it. At this point, uh, a new character enters our story, Samuel Pierpont Langley. One of the, although we don't remember him today, one of the leading scientists of the late 19th century. And a Pierpont. So uh, so uh, uh, a leading citizen as I well. I don't know if he's related to any kind of Pierpont family. I mean, it's a middle name. So you can, you can name anybody. I mean, I could name my kids Rockefeller. It doesn't make them, it doesn't make them Rockefellers. It's a little too late, I think, to be naming your kids. No, it's okay. <laughs> In their late teens. My pronoun is Rockefeller. Uh, the, uh, he later went on to become the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution. Unfortunately, he oversaw a terrible embezzlement scandal, which mm. kind of led to his eventual breakdown and death. He wasn't the embezzler, but, uh, I think the embezzler was working for him. That's he's how it goes. He's probably best known for his aviation related experiments. He was one of these, uh, balloonists. No, uh, Wright brothers era. Like, uh, one of these guys who in the early 20th century were racing to try to put powered flight together. Right. Um, unlike the, the Wright brothers were smart enough to go to a windy place. Yeah. He chose the deathly still air of the Potomac river. And as a result, he needed a catapult. (laughs) (laughs) So he was cheating. His, his plane not only needed a catapult to get aloft, it also didn't really have any kind of, um, roll, uh, control. Right. He could not. Pitch and yaw. Yeah. I think he only had pitch and yaw, but not roll. It was like pretty much the pilot's body. Oh, he had not invented the same kind of three axis, uh, uh, steering mechanism that the Wrights had rigged up. Right. So he had a plane that you couldn't really take off or land in. But except for that, it's pre- otherwise, pretty so- solid. He sounds sounds like he was a real pioneer. <laughs> yeah, so he didn't uh he didn't win the the race to the air. Um but back in the 1860s, he was primarily an astronomer. He was really into sunspots. And uh the the Allegheny Telescope Association of Pittsburgh, kind of a um just a private citizens astronomy fan club had uh, lost its funding and it, it had its uh, Pittsburgh observatory that had kind of gone to pot. It was in disrepair. This is prior to the, the skies of Pittsburgh being choked with, <laughs> right. with smelter smoke. Back then Pittsburgh was the smartest place <laughs> to put, to put like night sky observatory. Um, but uh, isn't it funny back then that just like, uh, you know, like-minded citizens would get together and build an observatory? Yeah, I mean— I, I kind of want to do it today. Have you ever been to the University of Washington Observatory? I have not. You know, back in the 70s, they were still scanning the skies from 45th Avenue <laughs> in the university district. I don't think they still do. I mean, Seattle's not a great place for night sky observation anyway, just because it's cloudy 240 nights a year probably. Right. Um, not to mention the light pollution, but uh, in this case, the same thing happened as you know. You mentioned the University of Washington. The uh, the club, out of money and bankrupt, left the observatory to the University of Pittsburgh, which put Samuel Langley in charge. Uh, he was interested in sunspots. He wanted to study sunspots, but the observatory was in a bad way, and sunspots then as now don't pay the bills. No, Boy, and there's, there's a cream the- for that too. <laughs> Uh, he, his, his research on sunspots was very influential and a lot of the the knowledge we know of of sunspots comes from his work. But again, not a, not a thing that corporate or government clients were interested in. So he needed money. 
And Langley's idea was this. What if I fund my sunspot research by taking very accurate time measurements with my observatory and charging for it? Charging oh. for the knowledge. So a, little, he, a, little, a little intellectual property. A little intellectual, uh, little scientific capitalism at work. Sure. And at first, his bright idea is, I will sell this time to jewelers. Jewelers are always selling watches. They've often got that big old-timey clock out in front. Do you remember these? Yeah, of course. There's still a few left in a lot of American cities. Yeah, we have two in Seattle, I think. I can, so. I can, ima- I can picture that one in, um, in uh, well, South Lake Union, I guess. Right, which was transplanted there. But I, there I can't remember where that one's from. But there's one— Oh, there's one in Westlake, too. Yeah, that's the thing. There's one that's right down there, a block from Westlake. But uh, there's another one kind of by, um, what kind of, the, the, there's one up right on Lake Union, but there's one like less than a mile south of that in, you know, what is now the heart of Amazonia. Is there another one on Capitol Hill? Uh, no, there's no, there's no street clock on Capitol oh, Hill. Oh, there's the one downtown though. That's what, that, that's the one I, when, when you said Westlake, I thought you meant the one by Westlake Center. No, there's That's one. right on Pine or Pike. The one there, on Pike. There's that one, but yeah. there's there's another one up by um, up on Lake Union, kind of by that cursed Chinese restaurant and all the yacht marinas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's the one that's been transplanted there, and I I was there the day they unveiled it. Ooh. I was walking around and here the, the this this uh, clock was like covered with a tarp, and I was like, and there were only five guys standing around. I was like, what's this? And they were like, oh, it's this clock. We've restored it, and they. Pulled the sheet out. There wasn't even like a ribbon cutting. Oh, I, it thought, was just I like, thought there were dignitaries. No, they just pulled the sheet down and I was like, wow. And so I stood there with these ding-dongs that had restored this thing, literal ding-dongs, and <laughs> did the thing, you know, did the like, tell me all about it. And I, I st- stood there for for 45 minutes while the clock restorers told me every little detail I don't detail think you need to pull clock. off the sheet if there's no audience. It's like if a, if a statue is unveiled in the woods. It was like a shipping sheet. I see. It wasn't like a ta-da. I, I, I see. Yeah. But there is a third one, I think, at least, kind of on, ooh, it's kind of by um, Denny Park. It's a, just a few blocks, maybe northwest of Denny Park. Are we anyway, talking about the same clock two different ways? No, there's the other one you're thinking of up by, that's up further north by the, where Queen Anne hits. So in 19... 19- 20, there were, um, in Seattle, wow, there, it says here that there are, there are still like 10 street clocks in Seattle. Oh, that means there's more to discover. Huh. Well, I mean, the funny thing is they used to stand in front of jewelry shops. Isn't that weird? Yeah. That was, that was your authority on time and space, a jewelry shop. Because they sold and repaired watches. I guess I, I see it. So that's that's the audience Langley has in mind. But within the first year, it becomes clear what kind of clients are interested in accurate time measure, measurements from an observatory. Uh, and that's railroads. Um, in New England, it has been, um, I guess, Harvard and Yale observatories have started to provide uh, times as benchmarks to to the New England railways, you know, the ones that had these awful accidents like the, the, the Pawtucket crash. But now you've got a Harvard-Yale problem, right? They're, they're never going to agree on what time <laughs> it is. Uh, this Allegheny railway time uh, is the first successful attempt at, um, you know, standardizing and, and marketing 
time as a service. And by the next year, there are now 2,500 miles of railroad and 300 stations in kind of the mid-Atlantic states that are running off of Dr. Langley's observations. Cool. And Allegheny time um, kind of becomes the standard. People assume that this is now how railroads should run. And it's not uncontroversial. It leads to protests, in fact. Like, people don't like the idea that that nameless scientists somewhere are telling them how to live their lives. It's not not that different than what we see today with vaccines and masks, maybe. Really? Yeah, like uh, the Indianapolis Sentinel runs an editorial saying, why should we have to eat, drink, and marry... Uh, oh. according to the whims of railway time, because because it's a it's a form of colonialism and imperialism. It's uh, and You're- there's still and because local time still exists next to railway time for at least a few more decades, you kind of have the idea that your regular, your normal correct time has been replaced by some yeah some hierarchy's idea of the time that is good for you, and it leads to a new, a really a new approach to your day. Uh, this is when we start to see. You know, you start to see letters to the editor complaining about this. Uh, you start to see literary characters who kind of enjoy it. Um, the main character of Around the World in 80 Days, Phileas Fogg, or uh, the dad in Mary Poppins. These are these Victorian or Edwardian gentlemen. Well, and in Mary Poppins, the guy that shoots the cannon off. Well, sure. Like, yeah. that's the perfect neighbor if you're Mr. Banks and your slippers Sherry and Piper do at 602. And uh, the around the world in eighty days guy is the same way. You know, he every at twelve forty seven every day he heads to his club, and if he goes the right speed, he arrives precisely at twelve fifty four. He lives his life with the regimentation of a railway timetable, and that turns out to be important to the story. But it's a funny, recognizable type to the Victorians. These people who use the new timetableization of life to as a means of. Um, self-discipline and order for themselves. Right. They're uh, they're positivists. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. In the UK, the standardization of all the railways was driven by patriotic appeal, interestingly. Huh. Uh, the idea was uh, there was a, a Liverpool and Manchester, like a northern railway operator named Henry Booth, who would inveigh against um, not the inefficiencies, but the, uh, what, the just the the lack of patriotism in a kind of a Britain where every church bell is doing its own thing. Wouldn't it be glorious instead if all the all the church bells chimed right. at the exact same time? Can you imagine a nation, the greatness of a nation that can do that? A united kingdom. If you if you will. Yeah. And the this is the beginning of the idea of uh, you know an empire in which the sun never sets. Imagine the power in that kind of simultaneity. It helps if your country is uh, on a north-south axis. <laughs> That's true. Right? The because- <laughs> variations are much less. <laughs> yeah. In America, you know, I guess we could have done the Beijing thing, um, but America, as we will see, has to grapple with these differences. Um, but people are, are worried about what the new anxieties of timetable life will do to the brain. There are medical doctors weighing in on this. There's an 1868 monograph called Hurried to Death, especially addressed to railway travelers, like literally pinpointing people who have, who have died from the the new stress. Oh, oh, died of stress. That existed in their minds. Yeah, like just being killed by the anxiety and all the attendant medical problems oh. that come with. Because imagine, people would write about, you know, essayists would talk about, I actually couldn't sleep last night because 
I was so worried that next morning I would have to get up and eat my finish my breakfast by 7:38 because I absolutely could not miss the 807 from from uh, from Waterloo Station. Wow. Um, this was something that had never existed before, and people started to see in their lives just the echoes backwards of. If I have to catch this train, I have to get up at this time. I have none to get of, up at this none time. of these I have to go to bed at this Phineas time. Fogg characters are regarded as like healthy, happy people, right? There's you don't have any character in fiction who's looking at their watch all the time. I mean, think about the Mad Hatter or uh, or the Rabbit. It's often for comic effect, right? It's it's you're right, but it is a, a kind of a troubling thing. But it's in fiction, it's often benign. Like look at this fussy or fastidious character, right? Um. But people were definitely aware that a new kind of human was being born and that there might be downsides, there might be losses. Um, in the U.S., Allegheny time persisted uh, into the 1880s. You know, the idea that railway time would be standardized. But as late as the early 1880s... As early as the late 1880s or as late no, as no, the no, early no. 1880s? No, 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 as late as the early 1880s. Oh, it's see, quite okay. different. Uh, American railways are... America is running on 70 different railway times. So these times are standardized across the system, but that doesn't help standardize it across the nation. Right. And, you know, and, and it helps. So passengers are no longer confused because presumably most of their travel is confined to, to one railway system. And if you think about travel in the United States before the, you know, before the westward expansion and even after, if you get on a train to go on a great adventure, you go east-west. Yeah. But if you're on a train to do business That's in the right. United States, you're going north-south for the most part, or at least until... The, yeah, the solar variations are not impractical. Yeah, right. I mean, it, it, the eastern time zone border is Indiana-Kentucky. Uh, it crosses Kentucky and Tennessee uh, and then hugs the border between Georgia and Alabama. But everything east of there is the same time zone now. Um, what would it have been in 1890, in, it, the, in the early, late 1800s? Well, one problem is that when the first time zones are drawn, because the stations tend to be the nexuses of these, of these times, the borders actually connect stations. Unfortunately, oh. that means you're dividing cities in half. Whoa. Um, so that would not work for a that works for a railway standard, but it does not work for a universal standard. The thing that makes everyone want to actually get down to the minute and get together on this is, of all things, scientists in 1874 are trying to study an aurora borealis, and all the observations that are pouring into the observatories would be super useful if they could be synchronized, and they cannot because wow. uh, the guy in Maine saw the best display at 211, whereas the guy in Portsmouth, New Hampshire saw the best display at 2.06, and there's really no way to tell if that was the same time or not. Yeah. Um, and so that's the thing that makes people think, you know what, a scientific age requires correctness down to the minute or even second. It makes scientists think that. I, uh, people... Yes, but, but they have a lot more power than they used to. Yeah, that's right. It's, you're it, you're absolutely now. right that the normal people do not care about observations of the Northern Lights. There was there was a New York Times writer, though, that was like, it is the death of all knowledge. <laughs> Cities are burning. And so that becomes the inciting event that gets, that gets these um, hypothetical schemes of making something like Allegheny Time nationwide. It really gets them to catch on. And on November 18th, 1883, uh, 
we have the day, uh, what's called the day of two noons, in which local mm. stations, in which local time and railway time finally become the same thing. You know, towns are allowed to observe their normal noon, but then they're going to get told by the telegraph when the Allegheny Observatory dictates noon, and then you're going to switch over forever. And no, that's noon forever. Yeah, no more two-minute hands on your clock, no more, well, the trains run on this time, but, you know, businesses, local businesses run on this time. Everybody's going to be the same. You've still got the borders going along, you know, lines connecting train stations, which is weird. Uh, Wait a minute. But everybody's on the same hour. Wait a minute. Is this where we get the term old timer? It is an old timer is a, is somebody that didn't observe the new noon and, and keeps their clock on weird, you know, like central St. Louis time. I'm not convinced, but an you, you might be right. timer. Come on. It's gotta be it. The funny thing is not all the cities are into this. Um, all the big train termini have to do it, but like Detroit, I guess, by virtue of being tucked away up there is able to hold out. Until 1900, they, uh, uh, Detroit uh, uh, ignores the new growing convention for four time zones in America and just keeps its own time. It's in, weird because until the upper, 1900. upper peninsula of Michigan, which properly should be on central time, is on eastern time. So Michiganers are already screwing with it or, or continue to screw with it even after they adopted it. But the funny thing is the U.S. doesn't um, make that a matter of statute. Until World War One, oh, the Standard Time Act of 1918 is what gives us daylight savings time. You know, uh, the Central Powers had already decided to save, you know, on gas and electricity by maximizing daylight, moving the clock ahead an hour. In I'm the, again it uh, uh, in the summer. Are you for it or again? I'm for year long daylight savings time. Oh. Just switch it, and then that's Essent- the new time. Essentially, the yeah, I would love it if the Pacific Coast just ran on Mountain Time, um, but we're not allowed to do that by statute. Ooh. The government will let you choose daylight savings time, but it will not let you choose your time zone. Uh, it's the nanny state, and the, so the point of the act was to mandate daylight savings time in the U.S. for World War One as part of the war effort, but that would only work if time was standardized everywhere. So that's when places like. You know, that's when the whole country gets dragged kicking and screaming into our four time zone world. And in 1920, the U.S. Naval Observatory begins giving the time away for free over the wire. And that's what ends, finally, uh, the Allegheny Observatory's groundbreaking and lucrative uh, effort at at uh, inventing time. You know, in my own life... Um when I was a kid, the state of Alaska where I grew up was um, was separated from Seattle by two additional time zones that um, no longer exist. Like the state was divided or was all of Alaska on the same time zone then or not? No. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, Alaska, there was Alaska time, there was Yukon time. Um, and, there, then, and then Anchorage pulled to Beijing? Uh, well, it was a thing where there were, um, I think Yukon time switched over and that meant that only Yakutat in Alaska occupied this special time zone. So it, so it used to be 
that living in Alaska, if I called my mom in Seattle, it was three hours different. And now Alaska is only one hour different. What do people there think of it? Is it more or less convenient in different ways? I think it's, I think they like being in, you know, like being closer to the United States just, just because, um, of commerce. But what it means is that far Western Alaska is all on this Alaska time zone. And the people that are, you know, way, way out in the Aleutian islands, it's the equivalent, it's the equivalent of the Uyghur problem. Yeah. I mean, they're on the same time zone as, as people in the far, far Eastern. They're practically, they're practically in Russia and they're observing uh, a time that's pretty you know, only one hour off from Bend, Oregon or something. So if you look at the, if you look at mountain time, um, up in Canada, and then you see like Pacific time, Alaska time, there's a whole time zone, um, that's used in the North Pacific or used, used in, in, uh, like Samoa or whatnot that doesn't even exist. It goes around Alaska there are two time zones that go around Alaska, uh, <laughs> just to you, just to avoid it. Yeah, that used to cut through it. So it's it's kind of crazy, but but it still is weird to me to think I used to have to make that calculation until I was in high school, and then all of a sudden Seattle was two hours closer than it had ever been before. I still don't. I kind of don't like it. Well, we're probably speaking to far future. Listeners who are uh, quite sensibly going by the progression of the sun across the heavens and their own conscience, and uh, maybe maybe we can invent standardized time for them. Maybe we could go back to like continuous time, so that each person, even if I move twenty five feet to the west of you, I would be on a slightly different time because we all would carry atomic clocks. Yeah, I mean in the 20th century we're used to the idea that time is actually relative and that its constancy is a is pretty much an illusion. And I'm sure the future listeners are well aware. So they won't mind that until the until your your bozo from Hungary shows up and tells them all they're doing it wrong. Oh my god, that guy. And that concludes Allegheny time. Entry 032.MT2436, certificate number 13818 in the omnibus. Futurelings, we have no idea how long our civilization survives. How could we? You'd be asking a lot to think we could. I mean, we would need a different kind of timekeeper, wouldn't it's, we, Ken? It's true. And, and we'd, we'd need crazy foreknowledge. I mean, it's mid-October as we record this, and I don't even know if America's going to exist in three weeks, much less, uh, you know, when the meteor hits. Isn't that fascinating that here we are recording a show, everyone listening to this show knows the outcome of a thing that we hear on this side of the time bubble, even though we know time is a flat circle. We're speaking to 2021 right now, by the way. We're speaking to people that are living at the, at the earliest Right. And, Happy New Year, by and, the way. And are they living on the other side of the inauguration, presuming it happens? No. This okay, is so okay. pre-inauguration. So really, you, you, you could be living in a completely anarchic time. The tanks have come into your city or town. Uh, but in the unlikely event that America survives, uh, and 
and we are also talking to Kiwis and Aussies and and Limeys and um, I guess we don't say crowds, do, <laughs> do we? So all your all, all your affectionate uh, national terms come from what World War One? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, um, Frenchies! Hey, what's up? What's up, Gauls? So anyway, you don't you presumably feign as though you don't care about the American election, but of course everyone in the world is watching because America is the greatest country in history. Well, I think it's because our, <laughs> because our nukes <laughs> our, our nukes go further than New Zealand's. Anyway, if you want up to the minute news uh, from your omnibus ho- hosts, uh, you can go to our social media accounts at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. I'm on Instagram at, uh, under my name. Our, uh, all of our episodes are archived at Omnibus Project. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Um, you can communicate with other futurelings on our Facebook page at Omnibus Futurelings, uh, also on Reddit and various other places. If you're only interested in communicating with fans of me and talking about the Roderick verse, Exclusively, you can go to Gary's Van, which is a weird corner of Facebook. You're doing. You're, you're just calling an audible and doing your own promos now. Yeah, that's right. What, what? What? Who's your Facebook fan group, Ken? I bet they're. I bet they're all like. They're all LARPers. <laughs> <laughs> they're all trivia LARPers, and maybe you know it's. They might trivia be trivia LARPers. There might be a lot of fanfic out there. <laughs> they all play fantasy <laughs> trivia. They all have. They, all, they right. all do fantasy football, but with nightly jeopardy. If you want to talk about Ken, just go to any pub in in the world and join your your uh, trivia league. Yeah, one of the teams will have a, a a team name disparaging me at trivia tonight. Is it? Does that happen? Oh, I think so. They tease you. I think so. I mean, before before the pandemic killed bar trivia. The Ken, Ken Jennings killers. Uh, if you want to send us something interesting in real life, either a letter or an, an artifact, uh, you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And if you would like to support the show, we appreciate your contributions. Become a patron of Omnibus at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And that patronage will entitle you to access to special shows, pardon me, um, actual artifacts of the show in the form of show notes, um, photographs of some of the more interesting mail we receive, uh, and at, uh, at higher levels, the opportunity to pick show topics and even Zoom call with Ken Jennings and his lovable sidekick, me. On different screens. We don't we do not do the calls together. No, we're not next to each other. Ken's in his pajamas at his house. I'm as God made me. I'm always in a suit and tie on those calls. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Uh, we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, or if Worcester, Rhode Island allows, for that matter... We hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.